Well, I know y'all are going to be excited because today I'm going to wind up the Dungate and we're going to move on. But before we move on, we have one more lesson at the Dungate. And this has to become the gate in your life that you cherish. Because this is the gate. If I use it daily like I'm supposed to, this is where I get clean. This is where I get filled with the Holy Spirit. Even though I, am, I have the Holy Spirit when I'm born again, but many times he is not in control of me because I am all clogged up. So we want to look at this lesson today and just pray in your heart now that God's preparing your heart and that you are willing to be obedient to his word. We want to talk about a surrendered saint today. Now remember, at the Dungate, we have a daily appointment. And sometimes we may need to go there more than once per day because we are constantly needing to confess our sin. And what does that mean that I confess my sin? I agree with God on what he says about me. So if he prompts me, Francine, this is wrong in your life or your thought life or your attitude or something, I confess it, I agree with him. That's what that means. And then fellowship is restored. Now, it is time to get the garbage out of our soul. Remember, the city of Jerusalem had a dung gate at the southernmost end. That's the lowest point in the journey. And they had to keep, they brought all the trash out from the temple and from the city because they are keeping God's house clean. You and I are God's house. Does he live within you? He lives within every born-again believer, and so we are to keep his house clean. We can go to the throne room scenes, like in Revelation. Also, Ezekiel had one. Isaiah had a vision of the throne room. What is God used to? Praise. Worship. I want my dwelling place for him to be one of praise and worship so he feels at home. Because that's what the throne room is like in heaven. Now, we are called a saint. That's hard for some of us to believe. That we are called a saint. Now, according to the Greek, this has nothing to do with my character. It has to do with who I am. And it's the state of being. We are all a saint. So how does the Bible define, define a saint? If I go to that, it's one that Jesus Christ bought with his own blood on the cross, and he has separated those people unto himself, and he said, you belong to me. Those are the saints. We are the ones that have accepted him, we're born again, and he's put us over here, and he said, you belong to me. You are a saint. It is a state of being. Now, y'all know I love the red and green apple illustration, and I pull it out once in a while, because all of us were born what? A green apple. So this is wonderful for kids and even adults, because I'm very visual, and you give me pictures, and I remember it much better. So we are all born as a green apple. All green apples have sin in their life, right? And so all green apples, here we are, and many green apples will now accept the blood-bought atonement of Jesus Christ. They realize they're a sinner and they need to be clean and they're clean, cleansed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And so if you're born again, you're no longer a green apple, you become a red apple. 
because you are washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And all you red apples over here, here and here, all the red apples, he said, I am setting you apart by God and you're separated unto him for his purpose. Right? That's who we are. That's a saint. I am to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. It is a process that will take my entire life. And so that's his purpose. You can go to Romans 8, 28, and 29. He tells you, here's your purpose. I want you to be transformed into the image and the likeness of Jesus Christ. If I go to Ephesians 1, Paul gives us, he shines more light on it. He says, we are to be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. Alistair Begg says, God's plan and purpose is not to answer all my questions. Wow. Because we always have questions, don't we? My main question was why? Why is this happening to me? He's not, his purpose is, to not, is not to make my life tranquil. His purpose is that I would live to the praise of his glory. That's what we're told. So in my spiritual walk, as I'm growing and maturing, I am to increasingly, as I grow, glorify God as the Holy Spirit is transforming my life. And we never reach that state during this lifetime. This, are we a new creation in Christ? 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, The old has gone, the new has come. I have a new person inside of me, and it's the life of Jesus Christ that now lives within me. But is, and then my life is to be an outworking. The change is in here, right? But I need it to be outworked to the outside. It's progressive over time, like the cycle of the butterfly. And so it takes time. Some of us mature faster than others. Some of us sat on go for years. Some of you may have joined me on go. And it just took years for me to really get started and understand what a spiritual walk and being filled with the Spirit really meant. Now, it will never be complete in this lifetime, ever. No one on this earth besides Jesus Christ ever reaches sanctification totally in the image of Jesus Christ. Why? Well, Paul tells us why. We have a battle raging within us. Do you have a battle? Okay, good. I'm not the only one. Galatians 5, 17 says, Your flesh, your old man, is lusting against your spirit, and the spirit lusts against your flesh. These are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish, but if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. We have this battle going on every day. Now, is it a fact that my old man was to have been crucified with Jesus at the cross. But is it also a fact that he still gives me grief? Absolutely. And so I am commanded to let the Holy Spirit mortify or put to death the deeds of the flesh in me. But if I am not at the dung gate and I am not confessing and I'm not getting my vessel clean, the Holy Spirit cannot put those deeds to death in me. And that's why I have this raging battle. Peter, in 1 Peter 2.11, 
says you are supposed to be like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. You say, I'm just a sojourner here. I'm just passing through. And what does he say? I urge you to abstain from the passions of your flesh. You should underline that. Abstain from the passions of your flesh. Why? They are waging war against your soul. What is your soul? My mind, my will, and my emotions. I'm going to stop and insert something right here. We know that we are a three-part person, right? Body, soul, and spirit. There are three tenses of salvation, and each tense of salvation goes with one of our body parts. So I say, I have been saved. That's justification. When I was washed in the blood of the Lamb, and that refers to my spirit being born again. Because before I was born again, did my spirit communicate with God? It's the spirit that had to be born again. So I have been saved. My spirit has been born again. I'm going to jump to the future now. And glorification has to do with my body. I will be saved. That's glorification. And it has to do with the glorification of the body. So my justification and my glorification is all wrapped up in Jesus. And it's promised to me. What's left? My soul. My mind, my will, and my emotions. My personality. This is sanctification. And there's a verse in Corinthians that says, We are being saved. That's the part of me that is being saved right now. And this is the part of me that will come up for review at the judgment seat of Christ. Not my spirit, not my body. That's all in the work of Christ. But the sanctification of my soul, I have to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in order for that to happen. He says, the passions of your flesh will war against your soul. Now, many of us grieve and mourn over the sin of abortion, and we should. We grieve and we mourn over homosexuality or transgender or how they're grooming our children. We grieve over murder, right? Those are the big sins, so to speak. Why do we not grieve and mourn over our selfishness? Our critical spirit, being impatient, having anger, roots of bitterness, envy and jealousy, and the list goes on. Oh, I'll grieve and mourn over abortion and transgender and what they're doing to the kids. But do I truly mourn and grieve over the sin that's in my heart? In Psalm 139, it says, Lord, you have searched me. You know me. You know my sitting down. You know my rising up. You understand my thoughts afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down, and you're acquainted with all of my ways. Does God know everything about you? Everything. Billy Graham says sin is rebellion against God. Oswald Chambers says sin is not weakness. It's a disease. He says it is red-handed rebellion against God. And the magnitude of me rebelling against God by having the sins that I'm not mourning and grieving over, look at the cross. 
those are the sins that put him there my sin of envy and jealousy the things that I struggle with the things you struggle with those put him on the cross so we want to look at conduct unbecoming a saint um, yeah unbecoming to a saint these are sins that I tolerate in my life there's a book called the respectable sins and there's a book called the sins of the saints I have both of them people thought I needed them so <laughs> they were given to me <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> so we want to look at a few of the respectable sins the list is this long and I'm not going to do but just a few of them and what happens they deceive us into thinking well my respectable sin isn't so bad right yeah I hope y'all are on the same page with me I hope I'm not the only one that deals with all of this so the first one I'm going to look at is called ungodliness and this was the first one listed in the book and I thought ungodliness but then as I began to study it and digest it and dig into it it's not what I thought it was ungodliness is not equivalent to wickedness ungodliness it says I'm living every day of my life I just go about my life as though God is not really involved in my life or my circumstances if I go to Romans 1.18, Paul will make a distinction here that I want you to see. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And I want you to see here he distinguishes ungodliness from unrighteousness. Two different things. Now, ungodliness, according to Jerry Bridges, is defined by an attitude towards God. And I'm talking to all the red apples. It's my attitude towards God after I have become born again and I am living my life day, every, day after day. I live my daily life with the little or no thought of God. What's his will for me, his glory, or my dependence on him? I'm just so busy living life that all of these thoughts are kind of over here. He says you're not thinking about God. That's ungodliness. Now, unrighteousness, however, refers to a sinful act in thought, word, or deed. And he lists things like being bitter, envy, strife, self-glory, and deceit. Can ungodly people be good moral people? Yes. Many believers tend to live their life with not a whole lot thought about God as they just go about their regular life. So think about some of the things you do day after day, especially when we were younger and had our kids and everything and we're shopping and doing all that stuff. Many days you're just not really thinking about God that he's right there listening and with you in every circumstance now many people will start their day and they read some quick scripture maybe they read for 10 or 15 minutes they have a quick prayer and then off they go now ungodly people can be good moral people because here's a mom she's got to go shopping because she's agreed to do cookies or something or a cake for a bake sale or you're going to take food to a shut-in you're going to do all these different things so you're doing good things correct all right, you're doing good things. 
Uh, maybe she is going to go shopping because somebody needs something. Maybe she's got to go to exercise class. Maybe she's going to meet people and they're going to have a... Oh, bless you if you have a committee meeting. Now, <laughs> I've been on more committee meetings than I... I don't think I'm on any right now, which is a good thing. They seldom think about God. You're off just doing all your thing. Not doing anything really what we'll call bad or wicked. But God is not in your thought. Y'all understand? You following me? Okay. Now, if we go to the book of James, he says Jesus should be the Lord of your tomorrow. And in James 4, he says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow, this is what we're going to do. And I'm going to go to such and such a town. I'm going to spend a year there. I'm going to trade and make a profit. And he says, You don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know what's going to happen this afternoon. Okay. So he says, what is your life? And he's talking to all of us that are born again. My life is a vapor. It may be here right now, and it can be gone. It will vanish away. He said, instead, you really ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and we'll do this or that. Now, James is not condemning people to make plans, because we all need to make plans. He condemns making a plan when you don't acknowledge dependence on God to carry them out. That's what he's saying. Now, Colossians 1, 9 to 14, we're going to go to Paul. How often do I think about my accountability to God? This is a passage, this is a prayer that you ought to pray for yourself. I memorized this passage, and I pray it many mornings. This is a great prayer. In fact, if you want to have some prayers in your life, go through Paul's writings and copy down all of his prayers and begin to pray those to yourself for yourself. And he says in Colossians 1, when he heard about the faith of the people in Colossae, he said, I do not cease to pray for you. I'm going to ask that you will be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that you can walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him that you're fruitful in every good work and you increase in the knowledge of God. That is a great thing for you to just highlight and even pray that in your own life. Fill me with the knowledge of your will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that I can walk worthy of you. It's a great prayer. Now, he's talking to just ordinary folks like you and me. That's who he's telling, this is my prayer for you. They're just ordinary people who had come to faith in Jesus Christ, but he expected them to live a godly life increasing in the knowledge of God and his wisdom unto all spiritual understanding, walking worthy of the Lord. So let's look at our prayer versus Paul's prayer. So the apple and the orange says, we're both fruit, but yet they're different, right? So let's look at Paul's prayer, and we'll contrast that with some of ours. Question, do my prayers reflect a concern for God's will and glory? Does my prayer express a desire that my life would be pleasing to him? Go back and read Colossians 1. 
Or is this my prayer? I have a list. And believe me, if you have the health needs of everybody, you have a long, long list. And these are, these are great to pray for, but don't forget to pray for the spiritual sickness and your own spiritual needs and the spiritual needs of your brothers and sisters. We can pray about health and financial and emotional needs, our desires and our wants, but sometimes we treat God like a divine bellhop. So are my prayers God-centered or are they man-centered? Now, moral, upright people, busy in God's service. This was me many years ago. Many of you know my testimony and you're probably tired of hearing it. But they had little or no desire with the relationship with Jesus Christ. Why am I not in the word? Why am I not memorizing it? Why am I not studying it? Why am I not dwelling on it? Because I'm too busy doing work. That was me. I was too busy, and the relationship went on the back burner. Oh, but then I would get involved in a Bible study, or I would get involved, there's a revival, and, you know, I would get my book and my Bible out and my pen and my journal and everything, and here I would start afresh. This time, it's going to work. Two weeks later, what am I doing? I don't have time for all of this because I have to be down at the church, or I have to work you know some spiritual activity it was all about my spiritual activity was going to make me spiritual and it did nothing of the sort your spiritual activity will not make you spiritual it's a mark of ungodliness boy that was hard to read and stepped on my toes it is a mark of ungodliness because you are not you're not aware that god is everywhere with you so the point is, in, in this uh, respectable sin, God has to be the center and the focal point of the life of a person that is a godly person. So all of my circumstances, all of my trials, all my activities, I look at through the lens of being God-centered. I have to have him as the center. <clears throat> being God-centered can only be developed right here at the dung gate in a posture of humility and absolute surrender before the Lord yielding to him wanting him to cut away from you everything that's not like Jesus you cannot genuinely desire to please God or glorify him if you don't have this relationship no matter how many committees you're on no matter what you're doing on Sunday no matter what you're doing through the week if you don't have the relationship you're not honoring him and glorifying him. So, the question, do I live my life as if God is relevant in my life or irre irrelevant? They did a survey to help us understand the question. And they did a survey on the values and behavior. Here's the green apples and here's the red apples. Right? Christians and non-Christians. People that said they're good moral people, but they're just... They're a green apple. And what did they find on the values and behavior? Very little difference. That is sad, but true. Now, do these, these uh, results, do they reflect a truth and a fact that many of us, many people sitting on the pews in this church and churches across the nation live much of their daily life and they really don't think about God? 
maybe on Sunday, maybe Wednesday night, but not much else during the week. How can I please him? How can I obey him? How can I glorify him? Those questions don't really enter our mind. So the truth is, it's not that I consciously say, okay, today I'm going to put God out of my mind. We don't, we don't do that consciously. Not at all. It's just that we ignore him on most of the issues, and he's seldom in our thoughts. So we'll leave that, and we'll move on to the sins of the tongue. We'll be more comfortable here. <laughs> oh, boy. So here we're going to enter gossip, unkind words, sarcasm, and criticism. They cannot thrive if I have a true awareness. God hears every word I speak. Every word. Psalm 139 verse 4 says, There's not a word in my tongue, but lo, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. That needs to be a verse that we keep before us. He knows. So I am not living every moment in the presence of my all-seeing, all-hearing Father if my flesh has control of my mouth. He tells us in 1 Timothy, this is Paul's advice to Timothy, young Christian, and he said, you are to train yourself to be godly. And he says, reject the profane and those old wise fables, and you've got to exercise or train yourself to godliness? Wow. And he says, bodily exercise profits little. But I want you to notice, I hear people say that a lot, and then they say the first part of this, but godliness is profitable for all things and they stop look at the rest of the verse in the promise godliness is profitable for all things what things because you have a promise of a life that is now that's your abundant life he says in john 10 10 i came to give you life and to give it to you more abundantly many believers have life but they don't have an abundant life and he says godliness you train yourself towards godliness and you have a promise of a life now and a life that is coming you mean i have a coming life absolutely this life is nothing compared to what's coming and we have a thousand years that will be in his millennial kingdom and we need to train for godliness now so i will be fit to serve him in his kingdom for a thousand years. A literal kingdom coming to this earth. He's going to be king of the world. And it's the last thousand years of God dealing with man. And then we go into eternity. A thousand years. And how I'm living now will determine how I live then. And where am I going to find it out? The judgment seat of Christ. So obedience in the way I live now and training myself towards godliness is critical. Critical. We have 70, 80, maybe 90 years here. And we drop this body. 
and then we're going to receive a glorified body we go to the judgment seat and then he's coming back at his second coming with us and he is going to set up his kingdom and he says this is what you're going to do and you and you and you let's look at your report card at the judgment seat of Christ I love the teaching of Chuck Missler because he said every day you get up and you say praise God I have another day to improve my report card and it is it's an evaluation of my life at the judgment seat of Christ notice what we see if you think about an athlete training which Paul uses that a lot commitment consistency and discipline no different when you're training yourself for godliness you're going to the Olympics what kind of an award will we receive when we stand before Jesus Christ now let's move on to anxiety worry and frustration these are just results of the difficulties in an ordinary life now notice anxiety also is related to fear because if you get anxious about something doesn't fear rise up yes it will now 13 times in the New Testament we are told that we are to trust God in all circumstances whether the sun's shining or we are in a storm we trust God 13 times in the New Testament now trusting God is the opposite of anxiety and frustration so if I am truly trusting him anxiety and frustration cannot be part of my uh, emotional composure it cannot now in Matthew 6 25 to 34 he uses the word anxious six times he says don't be anxious about what you're going to eat drink wear the unknown circumstances of tomorrow this is a moral command it is God's will that I be not anxious so if if I am anxiety is a sin and this is kind of hard to swallow because if I get anxious and I'm in all of this anxiety I'm really saying I have a distrust of God because if he cares for the birds and the lilies will he not much more care for us in Peter it says cast all of your care on him all of it goes on him what's the basis for me giving all my cares and frustrations to him because he cares for me so I just give it all to him now if I yield to anxiety or fear I'm really saying I don't think God cares for me Jack Hibbs had a great sermon on this morning about this at 630 if you get on any of his podcast or anything listen to his sermon this morning Jack Hibbs from Chino Hills California he addresses this he won't care for me in a particular circumstance that's triggering my anxiety it's a lack of acceptance on my part is it his providential will is he truly sovereign yes but if I'm all anxious and frustrated then I am saying he's not sovereign all the causes of my anxieties and fears they're under God's control and that's hard for us because we don't we don't know his timing we don't know his ways we get frustrated waiting I waited 10 years but let me tell you 
when you're obedient he gives you peace that passes all understanding and he will see you through it so you pray for relief oh god deliver me from this anxiety i know you're not pleased with it accept the circumstance and pray for a submissive heart to his providential will oh worry is a sin it's associated, though, mainly with a long-term difficulty, a painful circumstance, and it seems to have no resolution. And me worrying about it is not going to change it. So here's my circumstance. Does it seem like I am trying to get something uphill that is bigger than me? Yes, I've been there. And what happens when I focus on that circumstance? What about the promises of God? they just kind of fade away and then i'm like the guy in mark and he's saying lord i believe but help my unbelief because we all go there don't we i believe but help my unbelief now frustration <laughs> this was me last friday it involves being upset or angry whenever whatever is blocking my plan now, most of my frustration these days in the last few years is over this computer. <laughs> so last Friday, technology is wonderful when it works. But when you've worked four hours on a PowerPoint and you go do something and you come back and it is gone. It may be in a cloud somewhere. I have autosave, I have all that stuff, and the computer could not find at 4 o'clock when I had, had to get up for some reason. It took me clear back to 8 o'clock that morning, and I could not find it. Paul couldn't find it. But you know what? It's happened to me before, but this time, pretty calm. So what do I do? Saturday morning, get up at 3 o'clock. Start working on it. Because it's somewhere. I just got up, started working on it. By 7, I had my four hours back. And then I had to work the rest of a lot of the day to get to where I am. But frustration. It's blocking my plan. I didn't understand it. I, was, I feel like I'm on a time crunch. I have to get this done. This frustration has its root in ungodliness at the moment. Was God aware? Did he know that was going to happen? Is he waiting to see how I react? <laughs> see, if you're God aware, oh, he's going to see how I'm reacting. My reaction, God is not involved in my life or my circumstance. He allowed it. You know, a lot of times things are to see. How are you going to react, Francine? Are you going to react the way you teach? <laughs> okay, in Psalm 139, it says, Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them ever came to be. So, the prayer, God, this circumstance is part of your plan for my life today. Help me to respond in faith and in a God-honoring way to your providential will. Give me wisdom to know how to address the situation that's causing me all this frustration. Notice, we use scripture, we use dependence on the Holy Spirit through prayer 
to enable you to respond in a godly manner. I should never accept as a sin any sin. Well, that's just the way I am. That's part of my temperament. Any more than I would accept adultery as part of my temperament because I am to be changing into the image of Jesus Christ. My temperament's over here. Discontentment. In discontentment, this is another respectable sin listed. It usually arises from an ongoing and an unchanging circumstance that I can do nothing about. Like Laura, I could do nothing about her going into the transgender lifestyle. She was 25. I could do nothing about it. Sinful discontentment will negatively affect our relationship with God. Here's some examples. People are discontent. Why? They have an unfulfilling, maybe a low-paying job. They're single, well into midlife and beyond. Maybe they can't have children. Maybe they're in an unhappy marriage. They have physical disabilities or their health is just really bad. Think about the children of Israel. God led them to the Red Sea, and they're there three days. What are they doing? Grumbling and complaining. They are discontent with their lot. They always want to go back to Egypt, remember? So they're grumbling and complaining. They overlook the fact, the cloud, God himself led them to that situation. God led them. So you don't grumble, you don't complain. If God led them there, will he supply their need? He will supply the need. So every grumbling about the daily trials of life all my grumbling I'm directing to the one who works all things after the counsel of his own will. When I fail to recognize my incorrect response to my circumstance, God, this is a sin, then I confess it. I'm at the Dungate, remember? I confess that and I agree with you on this. Then he washes me clean and fellowship is restored. But if I fail to recognize this as sin I'm responding no differently from an unbeliever who never factors God into their situation so we're back to ungodliness is the root cause and I have to deal with all of these sins I've listed so far or it can lead to resentment many of us have dealt with roots of bitterness and resentment in our past maybe to God and to other people and I'm back to ungodliness is the root cause now, I can resign myself to the situation. I can just grit my teeth, and I can resign myself to that situation, but can I still be smoldering inside? <laughs> yes. And there's no peace if I just resign myself to it. The peace comes in acceptance of the situation. So you say, God, I accept my circumstance from you. I trust that unerr you unerringly know what is best for me and in that your love, you purpose only that which is best for me. So I ask you to use the difficult circumstance to glorify you. Now, I have gone, I'm not a victim anymore. So when I pray that prayer, I'm not the victim anymore. I've gone to a stewardship attitude. I now have a firm belief of the sovereignty of God, his wisdom, and his goodness in all things. That's where I am. So here's the legitimate discontent factor for you. You should always be discontent with your spiritual growth. 
always because there's always room to grow he, and how is he going to grow me oh I see another trial coming because trials are used to grow us and mature us so I will turn to him everything that's the way it is in my life now in Hebrews 6 1 what does he say I expect you to grow remember get on with it in chapter 5 at the end he is dealing with these immature people that still want to be babies in the word and they won't train themselves for godliness and what does he say in chapter 6 verse 1 let us go on and press on to maturity he expects it of us to be fashioned into Christ's likeness now I've used this before in the upper right corner we always get a big kick out of it but let me tell you there's a lot of Christians that way they should be grown or growing and they're not because they still are immature and they don't want to do what it takes to grow and be transformed into the image of Christ and it's possible for a Christian to go through life and not much change ever take place in their life they refuse to cooperate and they don't want to expose themselves to the Holy Spirit and what does the Bible call that you are grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit and we have commands to not do that so can a believer fashion himself and expose himself to wrong influences yes in Ephesians 2 2 in time past you walked according to the course of the world according to the prince of the power of the air he's the spirit that now works in the children of who Ooh, children that are disobeying notice that among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind and we were by nature children of wrath even as the others so he says stop it these forces had a part in shaping you in your past stop it don't let them shape you anymore and don't expose yourself to them anymore you will quench and you will grieve the spirit you'll become a clogged up vessel and you will never go to the fountain gate where you are living a spirit filled life never A.W. Tozer says stay out you devilish influences in the name of my savior let my soul alone it belongs to God we want him to take charge of our soul and mature us and grow us so a ministry to believers this is a ministry of the Holy Spirit you must fashion yourself by I, I need to expose myself to the Holy Spirit he's the one that can shape me and mold me into the image of Jesus Christ he's the one that can make the, the life of Christ to shine in me to empower me but you have to expose yourself to him and he can't be exposed to a clogged up vessel that's why we're at the Dungate so there's prerequisites for being spirit filled first there's confession cleanse empty now expose me to the Holy Spirit confession is first that's what I'm doing at the Dungate now in Ephesians 430 he says do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption so in quenching and grieving the spirit I have a quote from uh, a, I don't have her name Janice somebody okay she says don't break his heart 
his Holy Spirit that is moving and he breathes in you is the most intimate part of your life, making you fit for himself. He's making us fit, qualified to serve in his kingdom. Never take such a gift for granted. You have it as a gift. He will, if he does the work in you, you will receive what he's got for you at the judgment seat of Christ. Don't take it for granted by grieving and quenching him. Grieve is a love word. You cannot grieve one who does not love you. So how do I know what grieves the Holy Spirit? Well, you go to the word and you look at scripture that tells you about his nature and his character. I have them listed for you. We'll go through them quickly. He is the spirit of truth. So anything in my life that is false, anything that is deceitful, anything that is hypocritical in my life is, deceived, is grieving the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians, he's the spirit of faith. So anything in my life that speaks of doubt and unbelief and distrust and worry and anxiety, I'm grieving the Holy Spirit. He's the spirit of grace. So anything in my life that is bitter, ungracious, unthankful, malicious, and unforgiving, I'm grieving him. He is the spirit of holiness. Anything in my life that is unclean and defiling and degrading, I'm grieving him. He's the spirit of wisdom. So when I'm acting in ignorance or arrogance, conceit, and folly, I'm grieving him. He is the spirit of power, love, and self-discipline or a sound mind. So when I show weakness and I'm fruitless, there's no fruit in my life, and I have a lack of control, I'm grieving him. He's the spirit of life. So anything in me that speaks of, I'm just indifferent, I'm lukewarm, I'm just dull and dead, I'm grieving him. And then he's the spirit of glory. So anything in me that is worldly, earthly, or fleshly, is grieving him the holy spirit stands ready he's in me waiting he wants to teach me and to reveal the deep things of the word my ignorance of the bible my pride in my own knowledge my pride in my abilities grieve him we're also told do not quench the spirit in first thessalonians it says, as long as I live with a grieved or a quenched spirit, there is no way I can be filled and controlled by him. No way. When I grieve the spirit, what am I doing? I'm saying yes to Satan, and he's luring me into some sin. If I quench the spirit, I'm saying no to God. Because he is trying to woo me, use the spirit, to woo me into sanctification. He's trying to get me to get that vessel clean. He wants absolute surrender. And I have talked with people over the last few years, and they say, I'm not ready for that. I don't think I can do it. That's quenching the spirit in your life. Let's go with the Israelites again. They're always our good example. We're at Kadesh Barnea, and God says what? Go into your land at Kadesh Barnea. Remember about 11-day journey? And here we are. And they send, the, they send the spies in, and ten of them bring back a bad report and say, oh, there's giants there. We cannot do this. And so they refused to go in. That Their promised land was their inheritance. It is a picture of our abundant life where we surrender to him, and I want him to take control of me. 
and they stood there and they said we will not okay they will not now remember it's you and I going into our abundant life it's us being at the dung gate ready to go in for the spirit filled life the next day God's judgment comes and he says okay you wouldn't go now you're going to start a wilderness journey ha no we don't want that so no we don't want to go to the wilderness they refused to start the journey on the wilderness now they may have mourned greatly and said oh we've sinned but this was regret you know I got my hand got caught in the cookie jar this wasn't true repentance so they refused and they're they're moving from rebelling against God and they're going by presumption now oh now I'm going to obey when I see what the consequence was so now I'll obey we're going to go take possession of their promised land but we have a problem they got to go fight the enemy on their own and this is not going to go well Israel was not right with God and they cannot claim God's help as they go now out on their own trying to conquer the land we're off to battle I'm going to go conquer the enemy now who's going with you well we have no Moses we have no Ark of the Covenant we have no cloud leading us and we have no silver trumpets we have nothing we're going out in our own flesh to fight this battle it's not going to go well they presumed and they went up to the mountaintop they're lifted up with they're proud and they're arrogant that they're going to be able to do this and they're swelled with their own importance how they can fight this in their themselves without God without Moses the enemy chased them a hundred miles north chased them easy there is no substitute ladies we must by faith look at the promises of God and we must obey whatever he commands I obey God no matter what I feel no matter what I see no matter what I think I have to obey him Jerry Bridges says in his book on the respectable sins shall we presume on God's grace because I will tolerate in myself the sin that nailed him to the cross but I tolerate it in myself when I do that I'm presuming on his grace all of my rebellion all of my grieving the Holy Spirit all of my presuming on his grace all of my attitudes are done openly in the presence of God it's as if I'm acting out all my sin before him while he's sitting on his royal throne as long as I live with a grieved or a quenched spirit he can never fill me never so let's go back to Nehemiah and in Nehemiah if you remember he went on his night ride he, he was before Paul Revere he went on a night ride and what is he doing he leaves the valley and he has to go down and he comes around by the dung gate and he's going to go over here to the fountain gate but he can't get to the fountain gate because of all the rubbish never will you be spirit filled and have the benefits of the fountain gate if you don't get rid of the rubbish in your life first and he can't pass because of the amount of rubbish A.W. Tozer says God is never honored by our arrested development I am going and I'm let him take me so far and I stop 
there are people who start well but they don't finish well we have examples in the bible that is not what i want in my life that's why this series is finishing well whatever he brings in my life i want to finish well the new testament teaches we are to go on to full maturity and mediocrity is not the highest life that jesus offers it's not so god is going to sift out those who only speculate and know about oh, i know all about that abundant life no, he's going to sift out people who only have a head knowledge about it. A head knowledge. And he will lead forward to experience the abundant life. Those who by his grace are willing to submit at the Dungate with that humble heart. Absolute surrender. I want the Holy Spirit to control me. I want the Holy Spirit to change me into the image of Jesus Christ. So a lesson for us from the people at Kadesh Barnea that abundant life, that promised land is only mine when by faith I submit to God and it's the Holy Spirit that will lead me to victory. That's the only way I can have it. So there's some principles of dependent responsibility for you and me. If I want to be transformed into the likeness of Christ, it's, I'm responsible before God that I obey his word. And you say, I don't like some of the things in there. Doesn't matter we obey his word then you have to realize i don't have the ability in myself to carry out this responsibility all of us will say that none of us have it third i am totally dependent upon the enabling power of the holy spirit you know that power that raised jesus from the dead you have that same power boy how we neglect it and how we don't use it he will enable me to be able to have victory in my circumstances and rise above them a.w tozer says and this is a fascinating statement to bring the believer wholly into the will of god is the holy spirit's hardest task to get every believer holy in God's will that's the hardest thing for the Holy Spirit to do in any of our lives my part is to be to be spirit filled is yielding God cannot work in me and through me until I yield unconditionally to him first Corinthians six nineteen, Paul says what don't you know your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost he's in you you have it because of God and you are not your own you're bought with the price therefore you're to glorify god in your body and in your spirit they are his so christ's claim to me is a red apple his claim to me to have undivided possession and control of my life it's a legitimate claim he paid for me he bought me and he paid for me and God needs every one of our bodies as a channel so he can reveal himself to the people out here, to reveal himself to the people of the world. And it says in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, you have a treasure. You and I are just this earthen clay pot. A lot of us have a lot of cracks in us. And he says, you have a treasure inside of you so that people around you will see the power the ability you have it's the excellency of the power of god and nothing of you 
nothing. So I, the question is, must I give myself totally to him? I've had people ask me that. No, the question is, oh God, can I give myself totally to you? That should be the cry of our heart. The Holy Spirit works to bring me. He's trying to get me in a position. Refuse the further reign of my old man and self and choose the sovereignty of Christ over my life by yielding to him as my Lord and Master. And I love this phrase. I found it somewhere. I cannot pray thy kingdom come until I am willing to pray my kingdom go. That's too many people want it to be their kingdom. Ministry to believers, what's the Holy Spirit going to do in me? Bring conviction of sin. He will enable and empower me to deal with sin. And by the Holy Spirit working in me, I can put to death the sins that are in my life. He works to bring about my transformation by bringing into my life circumstances that are designed. Francine, you need to grow some more. You need to grow some more. He wants all of my heart, not just a part. He wants all of my heart. This is from John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. He said, although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. And we've done this before. Look at the Apostle Paul. He had been saved 18 years, and he said, I am the least of just all these little apostles here. Let's see what happens to him when he's been saved 24 years. He said, I'm less than the least of all the saints. So his, his circle has grown from just the apostles. Now I'm the least of the saints. And then by the time he had been saved 29 years, Christ Jesus came to save sinners. And I am what? Chief. The more he realized his need of sanctification. And that's how it should be in my life. The more I grow, the longer I have been born again, I should realize, Francine, there's still so much more work that needs to be done in you. All of us should come to that. The more like Christ I become in the fruit of the Spirit maybe being produced in me, the more I should grieve about these sins that we call respectable. The burnt offering in the Old Testament described the dying of the flesh in the New Covenant. And remember, the fire had to be kept burning how long? Continually, the fire never goes out, just like at the Dungate, because we're always putting trash on the fire, trash and sin on the fire, our rubbish on the fire. It never goes out, just like the burnt offering. The animals had to be cut in pieces, and then they took the animal parts and they burned them. But the animal's inward part and their feet were washed with pure water. Is that significant? Oh, yeah. In like manner, you and I die in the flesh piece by piece. He keeps working on us till we give him a little bit more and a little more and a little more. But the offering of the inward part and the feet washed with pure water, 
this conveys a vivid picture of our walk our walk as we are growing the inward part our heart has to be washed with pure water the water of the word it says the pure feet pictures walking in the will of god how am i going to be able to walk in his will it's the power of the holy spirit and he does the work he will purify my heart and he's the one that will put my old man flesh to death in me he says in romans 12:1, you and i are the living sacrifice portraying the burnt offering in the old testament i beseech you therefore brethren why because of the mercy of god that you present your body a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to god this is your reasonable service A.W. Tozer, this is a sobering statement. Most of us are filled with the Holy Spirit as much as we want to be. There's one to star. He said, God has set a feast before me, but he will not compel me to eat. He's opened the door and said, here's the abundant life, Francine, but he will not force me to enter it. You must commit to contend with all the rubbish and the unconfessed sin, which is blocking the entrance to your abundant life. God's opened the door to the abundant life, but he doesn't force you to enter because it takes submission and it takes humility before him. God got a blank check for you, a deposit. It makes me a spiritual millionaire, but he doesn't write the check. What's he waiting on? He doesn't require golden or silver vessels, but he does demand clean, empty ones. Just a quick story here about Gideon. He had an army of 32,000. They're facing the enemy, and this illustrates God is seeking his quality in you and me. Remember, God said he had 32,000. Remember that we're going to go to battle? And God said, how many of you are afraid of the dark? Oh, wow, 22,000 of them left. They're afraid of the dark. Okay, now we have 10,000, and God said, oh, some of these 10,000, they're not prepared for the battle either. They'll never be a good soldier. Never. God was putting emphasis on quality. Who will cooperate in the performance of the will of God? Only 300 out of 32,000. God is seeking people who are willing that their life would be fashioned according to his grace and his will. And he will begin to sift out people that cannot see God's purpose and design for the blessing of the abundant life. Take a few minutes with me and go on the journey of Jesus and notice the steps. This is the journey Jesus Christ made the last week to glory and immortal triumph. Here are the steps of Jesus. Beginning in Luke 22. Being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Look at him in Pilate's hall. He has on a purple robe and a crown of thorns. Then what happened? His closest disciples all forsook him and fled, and he's alone. Look, now he makes the journey to Calvary. 
and he says father why have you forsaken me and in the darkness he surrendered his spirit notice that journey when did he surrender his spirit when he was in darkness This was the path that Jesus Christ took to everlasting glory and immortal triumph. As he is, so are we in this world. It tells us in Psalm, if we delight ourselves in him, he will give us the desire of my heart. But I want to tell you, as you grow in him and get in his word, what will the desire of your heart be? Him. And him changing you into his image the Holy Spirit I would want you to cut away from me everything that is not like Jesus oh God would you let me be an instrument for your glory God would you empower me for your service repentance is the key be committed to obedience for sanctification by the Holy Spirit for absolute surrender to God's will and God's purpose for me Remember, in Nehemiah 4.10, Judah said, The strength of the bearers of burdens is decayed, and there's so much rubbish, we can't even build the wall. There's too much rubbish, and nobody will do this except Malchiah. There was one who was willing to deal with all the rubbish, and he was, had a place of authority in, this, in the town. But he put aside his glory. He put aside his robes, and what did he do? He went, and he dealt with the rubbish and the dung and the refuse of the dung gate. It says he built it and he hung its doors with its bolts and its bars. The dung gate represents a sold-out, consecrated, surrendered, spirit-filled life. The key is repentance, and it says the bolts and the bars, the hinges, they've got to be well-oiled. And in the scripture, the Holy Spirit is a type of oil. For that gate to be used in us, it's got to be well-oiled with use by the Holy Spirit. And we use it frequently. Few people will enter into a sold-out, surrendered life. It awaits the child of God who will use and agree to be at the dung gate. But few will ever come to the point of sacrifice that's required in order to step into the realm. And you're willing to say, I surrender all. Let's pray.